The Monsters That Made Us is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For all things movies, music, media, monsters, and more, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Today we're heading down to sunny Florida, where baggage clerks Chick Young and Wilbur Gray have become entangled in a mess of monstrous proportions. After delivering a pair of crates allegedly containing the remains of Count Dracula and the Frankenstein monster, Wilbur soon realizes that there may actually be some truth to the old legends after all. Little does he know that his beautiful girlfriend Sandra Mornay is in league with the Count and that his brain is next in line to be transplanted into the Frankenstein monster. With the help of the wolfman Lawrence Talbot and insurance investigator Joan Raymond, can Chick save Wilbur from this horrible fate? Hold on to your heads and watch out for those hidden passageways because we're talking Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. To a new world of gods and monsters. By studying these and other species, we add to our knowledge of how life evolved, how it adapted itself to this world. He went for a little walk. He did his face. Welcome to The Monsters That Made Us, the podcast where we celebrate the spooktacular characters and films in the Universal Studios Classic Monster series. Today we're talking about the 1948 horror comedy Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein, the final film to feature Dracula, the Frankenstein monster, and the Wolfman. I'm the invisible Dan Cologne, and joining me as always is my co-host, my bosom buddy, Monster Mike Manzi. How are you? How's it going, Dan? Uh, I just tell you, I tell you, I just saw a monster. You gotta believe me. <laughs> so with Universal effectively out of the horror game, having wrung all of the scares they could out of their stable of monsters, I suppose it does make some kind of sense that they would try to reinvent these iconic characters as comedic foils. And as far as comedy is concerned, nobody was more popular than Bud Abbott and Lou Costello in the early 1940s. Fortunately for Universal, the famous comedy team were among their very short list of contracted talent in the back half of the decade. I feel like the reputation of Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein speaks for itself at this point. It's probably my favorite horror comedy of all time, and many horror fans would probably count it among their favorites as well. But as perfect as it is, in my opinion, I was a little surprised to learn that not everyone involved was super hot on this project. Despite the behind-the-scenes friction, the film was a major success perfectly melding the comedic sensibilities of its two leads with the old-school gothic horror of its monsters and reigniting public interest in all of them. By now, Mike, we've talked quite a bit about our histories with the classic monsters, but I'm interested to know your history with Abbott and Costello. Where did you first discover them? Are you a fan? And how do you feel about their first meeting with these monsters? Right. So, been a lifelong fan, known about Abbott and Costello since I was a very young child. I'm the last in the line of a couple of brothers and sisters, so the older ones really loved Abbott and Costello, my one older brother in particular, and not just this movie, but like they would run Abbott and Costello a lot on like WPIX Channel 11 growing up, so Saturdays and Sundays, this was on a lot, and I always loved these guys. I mean, they were kind of like live action cartoons to me mm -hmm. and you know they even did make a couple cartoons out of these guys and they become templates for character voices and personalities later down the line but later 
in life, it's kind of funny. I found out something about Lou Costello is that my grandfather knew him, apparently. No way. My grandfather was a tailor in Patterson, New Jersey in the 40s and the 50s. And, and so from what I was told, they used to bowl together and my grandfather was his dry cleaner. And, you know, I can't corroborate any of this because <laughs> everyone is no longer living who could corroborate this story or anything. But recently, my older brother was telling me, you know, oh, yeah, we used to go visit Pop. And he was like, this is before you were born, like way before you were born. Like every Saturday or Sunday, and we'd watch the Yankee game. But before the Yankee game, he would make me watch Abbott and Costello because he said, that's my friend up there. And we always watch his show. Wow. Uh, as far as I know, they knew each other. Who's to say, you know, how close? But once I found that out, that always gave me a thrill. And rewatching this movie in particular makes it even more enjoyable at times. Very fun stuff. Holy shit. I was not expecting that sort of connection to Abbott and Costello here on The Monsters That Made Us, but that is a super cool story. I don't have anything as cool as that, although my story is a little similar to yours in that I was introduced to Abbott and Costello when I was a kid. So I spent a lot of time with my grandparents. On Friday nights, I would spend the night. My parents would go out. They were in a bowling league when I was a kid. So like every Friday night, they'd send me over to my grandparents' house and I'd stay overnight and watch I Love Lucy reruns. And at some point, they introduced me to Abbott and Costello. And I'm not entirely sure like what my first exposure to them was, but I distinctly remember learning about the who's on first routine. And at some point I learned that that routine was featured in the movie, The Naughty 90s from 1945. And so I got a copy of that movie. I think somebody probably bought me a VHS copy of it. And I watched the shit out of that movie. So like that was, I guess my introduction to Abbott and Costello was that routine in that movie. Also, they were in Hold That Ghost. I had heard recordings of their radio show as well. That particular routine routine was a staple in my family growing up. Excellent. Yeah, the who's on first is legendary. You know, I mean, that is the routine. Yeah, I love that routine. These, these guys are great, you know, and not just in their monster stuff, but I mean, like all the other stuff they've done, I've always enjoyed as well. Yes. And this movie is, like I said, it's my favorite horror comedy. I watch it every October. In this case, I saved it for this episode. So I watched it in November. Thank you. You never get too much Abbott and Costello, but you know, I had other things to watch through October. So I saved it so that I could come in fresh and, and really get the most out of it, you know? All right, well, let's get into this. There's a lot to cover. Unfortunately, there's way too much material to really be contained into one episode. So we're just going to sort of condense it here a little bit. I imagine anybody listening to the show is already familiar with Abbott and Costello. But if you're not, I would highly suggest that you seek out their other movies. There's a lot of really great material on the Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein Blu-ray. So definitely check all that out. But we're going to go through as much as we can here just to keep this all contained to one episode. This isn't an Abbott and Costello podcast, unfortunately. So we're <laughs> going to have to be a little more brief than we'd like. Yeah, I realized when putting this show together that we could probably do two full episodes on this one movie. Yeah, so definitely seek them out if you are not already familiar. But we're going to go through kind of all the important stuff here. Nice. All right. So on November 28th, 1945, British entrepreneur J. Arthur Rank acquired one quarter interest in Universal Pictures. Rank was the founder of the Rank Organization, a British entertainment conglomerate formed in 1937. He was a devout Methodist and a Sunday school teacher who enjoyed making short religious films. In 1933, he created the Religious Film Society to distribute his films before eventually becoming a co-owner and operator of Pinewood Studios. So the Rank organization was ultimately a way for him to consolidate his filmmaking interests. Okay. Interesting. In 1946, after reporting a profit of only $4.6 million, Universal 
cleaned house, dropping many of their contracted performers, including Lon Chaney Jr., and by July had officially begun a merger with a small young company called International Pictures, founded by former 20th Century Fox Vice President William Getz in 1943. So that, in a nutshell, is how Universal Pictures became Universal International. Okay. All right. Now, at this time, Universal International only had Deanna Durbin, Maria Montez, Bud Abbott, Lou Costello, and a handful of other actors on the payroll. Thanks to the success of Buck Privates in 1941, Abbott and Costello were among their most powerful performers. But by 1945, things were a little bit rocky for the famous comedy team. Not only had they almost split up due to infighting, but they had lost their option for more films at MGM, with whom they had made a handful of movies. And in 1947, Camel Cigarettes had dropped their radio show. Not to mention the fact that Abbott was suffering from severe epilepsy and subsequently developed an alcohol dependency to cope with that, and Costello almost dying of rheumatic heart disease in 1943. Director Charles Barton, one of the top comedy directors at Universal, surprisingly wanted nothing to do with them. Barton was an assistant director for many years before directing the 1934 film Wagon Wheels for Paramount, where he stayed directing four films a year until 1937. In 1939, he joined Columbia, where he directed a total of 34 films before signing a term deal with Universal in August 1944, where he would direct 14 films over the next 11 years. Producer Robert Arthur, who had first worked with Abbott and Costello on Buck Private's Come Home and would produce a total of six of their films, as well as the first Francis the Talking Mule film for our Ed Wood fans. (laughs) Ed Wood, the Tim Burton movie, not Ed Wood, the filmmaker. He teamed up with veteran Abbott and Costello writers Frederick Ronaldo and Robert Lees, both of whom contributed to Hold That Ghost and The Invisible Woman, to develop a script that featured Frankenstein's monster, Dracula, and the Wolfman, as well as the mummy Karas, the Invisible Man, and count alucard whoa yeah they're gonna go full avengers the first time out this is all crazy how this is all like coming together almost out of this weird sense of desperation (laughs) and also like how many people behind the scenes director and producer worked with abbott and costello and don't want to work with them at this point we're gonna get into it but you know abbott and costello did not make life very easy for the people involved in these films i was surprised to learn that as well but the more i came to learn about abbott and costello as professional comedians uh, the more i started to understand why that was the case so obviously caris and alucard were cut out of the film entirely and the invisible man was reduced to a small cameo in the final minutes of the film but the basic plot which more or less remained intact involved the frankenstein monster becoming dracula's slave and the count's search for a new brain for the monster also receiving a script credit was john grant who was another frequent abbott and costello collaborator writing many of the gags you see in their films including the candle gag which he repurposed here from hold that ghost Nice. The gags are fun. We'll get more into it, but I'll just say they use the one gag of there's a monster behind me over and over again, but it works every time somehow. So to be talked about later. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that Lou Costello was so great at the scares. Yeah. They understood that his scare takes were so good that they just squeezed every ounce they could out of them. Hey, man, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah, smart. Smart tactics. After reading the script, apparently, Lou Costello hated it, saying, quote, you don't think I'll do that crap, do you? My five-year-old daughter can write something better than that, end quote. Wow. But Robert Arthur felt so strongly about the project that he offered Costello a $50,000 advance on his percentage if he agreed to do it. Oh, wow. So they just like backed up the money truck. I mean, they've, I guess they've just always been a way of doing business. Yeah. 
for real. In July 1947, Variety magazine publicly announced the film with its original title, The Brain of Frankenstein. Oh. Later, William Getz eventually changed this title to Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein to better sell it as a comedy. Yeah, I mean, you got to have them in the title. Uh, the Brain of Frankenstein would have been good for maybe a previous movie, but that's a cool title. Yeah. Production began on February 5th, 1948, with a 32-day shooting schedule. According to director Charles Barton, Abbott and Costello were very difficult to work with. He said they would, quote, fight me like hell, but I stood my ground with them and so did Bob Arthur, end quote. That's one of the longest shoots that we've had yet, and this is also going to be one of the longest movies, if not the longest movie we've had so far. Yeah, as we'll get into it, I think some of it had to do with their behavior on set, but also, I you know, I imagine comedy at this time, they're not shooting digitally, so it just takes time, and they have to do takes and takes and takes, and a lot of takes. Yeah, there's special visual effects. It's like Roger Rabbit, they're acting against nothing at times, and then you have to draw in the bat or whatever. So A lot of effect shots here, yeah. Apparently, Abbott and Costello also left home several times during shooting. They would sometimes not show up at all. Sometimes they would spend the days playing cards. They were also known for their practical jokes on set, most notably pie fights. What? That's not a practical joke. Unless you like put a pie on someone's seat and trick them to sit down in it. Like A pie fight is just a pie fight. But, you know, just generally speaking, they were like up to a lot of shenanigans on the set. Some people have suggested that it was unprofessional, but I saw an interview with Lou Costello's daughter who said that it was simply their way of keeping the energy up on sets because they had come from live performance. And so being on set, the whole stop-start nature of film production was very difficult for them to keep their energy up. So they would just screw around and that would be their way to stay engaged when the cameras weren't rolling. Ah, yeah, because they're from vaudeville. Yeah, and so I was even going to ask, like, did they skip days of shooting to go perform stand-up? Who knows if that was happening to where they're like, you know, I just need a break from this stop and go movie stuff like let's hit the road for two days and we'll be right back yeah not, not to my knowledge not to my knowledge i think they were committed to the i mean they had made several films at this point they were committed to the film it was just the whole sitting around waiting and all that was very difficult and i can't blame them you know i've been there when you're part of the process you appreciate every finished film so much more <laughs> <laughs> The film had a new makeup department. So after Jack Pierce was unceremoniously fired, as we talked about on a previous episode, the new makeup team led by Pierce's protege, Bud Westmore, included Emile Levine, who attended to Lon Chaney, and Jack Keevan, who did the Frankenstein makeup for Glenn Strange. Thanks to Bud Westmore's new techniques with foam, rubber prosthetics, and masks, both actors spent about an hour in the makeup chair each day, as opposed to four hours with Jack Pierce, which saved about 100 hours of production time, roughly. Although Cheney's transformation sequences took significantly longer, nearly 12 hours to complete those. And by this time, his alcoholism was becoming more of an issue. And that made these sequences much more difficult to shoot. I guess that's why they're mostly laying down shots of him transforming in very comfortable positions. You could see like maybe there's a pillow under him or anything. So, you know, regarding the makeup, I dig it. Like it's Really trying to go back, I think, a little bit, at least for Dracula, as much as we see of Dracula's face, Mm -hmm. it kind of cheated a little bit, but I understand. But I love the way the monster looks, and I dig this wolfman like yeah. it's different but it's also the same it just has like its own little tweak you know it's like when they just change iron man's costume 
barely, but you're like, oh, there's something different about that, but uh, I can't really put my finger on it. So all around a good job of not reinventing the wheel here. For sure. Understanding, you know, their boundaries and what people are expecting. Now, I'm not going to defend the way Jack Pierce was treated when they let him go. But I will say that Universal was right to replace him because I don't think he was willing to change his methods. And it's clear that like the results speak for themselves, right? The difference between this Wolfman and Jack Pierce's Wolfman are not so significant to justify another three hours in the makeup chair, you know, and all that money that would get sunk into that as well. That's the main point is right there is that this guy was willing to use new technologies and explore new avenues to cut down on the application time. And that's where they're being inventive, not with the design. They're like, how can we stay true to the look, but use modern methods and new ways of doing it so that these poor people don't have to endure what they used to, you know, and we can get on with the show a lot quicker. Yeah. So production wrapped on March 20th, 1948, although one additional scene with Jane Randolph was shot on April 9th. There's a couple crew credits I want to go through real quick before we get to the cast. Yeah. Cinematography was done by Charles Van Enger, who also shot Phantom of the Opera in 1925. There's a fun connection there. Frank Skinner, who previously scored Son of Frankenstein and The Wolfman, composed an original score for this film as well. Nice. Special effects were developed by Jerome Ash and David Horsley. Now, Horsley had also worked alongside John P. Fulton, who was Universal's longtime effects guy. He worked on Bride of Frankenstein, Werewolf of London, The Invisible Man Returns, The Invisible Woman, and Invisible Agent, all uncredited. All uncredited? Wow. Intern work. At the time, we'll get into this when we talk about The Creature from the Black Lagoon, but at the time... The way films would be credited, you would credit like whoever was in charge of makeup, whoever was in charge of special effects. He would have his own team. But, you know, obviously you can see credits are are much longer now because films go to great lengths to credit every single person who worked on a movie. Whereas back in the 1930s and 40s and 50s, it was just kind of like, all right, who's the head effects guy? John Fulton, or in this case, Jerome Ashton, David Horsley. Okay, we'll give them the credit, but then they've got people helping them as well. I'll just say, you know, this one looks great, sounds great. Would have thought that they poured a lot of money into this movie, that they took their sweet, sweet time making it. So like to hear that, not that they rushed it out, but to hear that there's all these problems going on backstage here and there but it looks great it looks on par i mean it's better than like the last four or five yes (laughs) it's the best looking one that takes place in america yeah one credit that isn't included that I think should have been considering how great it is. Now, and again, I I can't verify this because it's uncredited, but the opening credit sequence is believed to have been designed by Walter Lance, who was the creator of Woody Woodpecker. Oh, wow. All that animation of them walking around in the graveyard. and Oh, that's cool. Like the little monster parade or whatever they're doing. (laughs) Again, I can't verify that. That was something that I read in my research. I want to assume that he probably also contributed to the Dracula transformation as well, because Dracula does the man to bat transformation or vice versa a couple times. Oh, right. And it's all done through hand-drawn animation. So I want to say he probably was involved there too, but I can't even confirm that he did the opening credits. So I'm not going to suggest it. I don't really know much about animation back then, except for Disney stuff, really. So like, couldn't even tell you if Universal had their own animation studio, if they were making their own shorts before films or what have you, or making animated things there and here. But I feel like that's what that was a big Warner Brothers thing. Mm-hmm. Like Warner mm-hmm. Brothers was 
is heavy, heavy animation kind of stuff, but fascinating. Yeah, definitely. With a budget of only $759,524, it was Universal International's second cheapest film that year, but it would go on to gross over $2.2 million in the US, making it their second highest grossing film of 1948 behind The Naked City. It was also the most successful film in the Frankenstein series since James Whale's original film. Good. If that's what it takes to get the recognition back to the monsters, fine. I feel like it's like American gods, like whatever it takes to remember the old gods. Right, like, you right. know, they have, to, they have to adapt to the new world or die. And like, uh, that's, that's the vibe I'm getting off of this. Yeah, I've got complicated feelings about, you know, mergers just in general. It's, I think it's safe to say that if Universal Pictures had not been acquired by the rank organization and then merged with International Pictures, we're not going to have this movie. They didn't have the money. To make something like this myself included like i complain about disney buying up everything but then if they didn't would we have andor or right. you know stuff like this like great television coming out of those franchises i mean it's not all great all right i'll give you that but like here and there you get these orkin stones or these gems or whatever i'm with you it's conflicting but then you get the product sometimes and you're like worth it Right. And the other byproduct of this film's success is that it renewed interest in both Abbott and Costello and the Universal Monsters, like I said at the top of the show. And it began a whole series of films pairing the two in similar situations where they'd go on to meet the Invisible Man, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and The Mummy, which we will get to. All right, let's get into the cast. We've got Bud Abbott as Chick Young and Lou Costello as Wilbur Gray. These two really don't need much introduction. We've already kind of spoken about them quite a bit, but they were, like I said, the most popular comedy team of the 40s and 50s, and they were the highest paid entertainers in the world during World War II. Both were from New Jersey. Represent. Bud Abbott was from Asbury Park. And as you mentioned, Lou Costello was from Patterson. Bud Abbott was an established burlesker. He came from a performing family, his parents having met while working for the Barnum and Bailey Circus, while Lou Costello, inspired by Charlie Chaplin, hitchhiked to Hollywood in 1927 with dreams of becoming a dramatic movie star, if you can believe that. But with the advent of talking pictures, he moved back east in 1928 to acquire more theatrical experience. And during the Great Depression, he met Bud Abbott on the burlesque circuit. They formally teamed up in 1936 before making their radio debut on the Kate Smith Hour, February 3rd. 1938. The following month, they debuted their famous Who's on First routine, and by 1940, they had their own radio show, The Abbott and Costello Show, which would run for almost 10 years. They made their film debut with One Night in the Tropics that same year. They would go on to do 28 films for Universal, and in 1951, they transitioned to television, joining the roster of rotating hosts for the Colgate Comedy Hour on NBC, then did the half-hour TV series The Abbott and Costello Show from 1952 to 1954. Does it say anything about the cartoons? No, I don't think I was aware of cartoons that they had done yeah there, there's some Abbott and Costello cartoons out there I think there might be like early Hanna-Barbera stuff and comics as well so to relate it back to Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein around 1943 after the success of Frankenstein meets the Wolfman Abbott and Costello had considered doing a Broadway show with the monsters but because of their busy schedules they just couldn't afford to spare the time doing a Broadway show so it never materialized oh man could you imagine Bella doing this on Broadway? That would have been insane. That would have taken him right back to the beginning, right? Because he originated Dracula on Broadway. That would have been wonderful. Now, Lon Chaney Jr., he's freelancing here as Larry Talbot, the Wolfman. Supposedly, Chaney hated this film, saying he, quote, used to enjoy horror films when there was thought and sympathy involved. Then they became comedies. Abbott and Costello ruined the horror films. They made buffoons out of the monsters, end quote. 
Okay, I don't know. I don't. You know, we don't have enough time. <laughs> I don't exactly agree with that. Like, this is a funny movie, sure. Okay, it's an Abbott Costello film, yes, but like, it's still scary. Like, it gets my nerves going. Like, it has. Like, it gives you a reaction. You know, I just think maybe it kind of is ahead of its time for some people you know i mean even horror comedy these days doesn't always get a lot of due respect and you know yes it's funny but i don't see where they're being disrespectful and and the monsters aren't funny they're all playing it pretty straight as far as i can tell so and that's the contrast most of this is being played extremely as if it's actually happening and these characters are just extreme historically fans even some of the performers in this film have disagreed with lon's estimation of the film i mean that's one of the reasons that i love it is that the movie takes the monsters seriously yes they are involved in gags i think they really only ever have one outright gag and it's when the frankenstein monster sees lou costello for the first time and like is scared by him and it's funny you know but other than that there's really like none of the monsters um, are compromised. They're still the monsters that we know. It's just that now they are playing opposite to funny men. Yeah. And this isn't anything new. It's just new on this level of celebrity because this is like that mummy movie in some ways that we referenced back then. Mm -hmm. We were referencing Abbott and Costello where it was like, you know, the tall straight guy and he had his short funny assistant and they were off hunting the mummy. I think it was the second mummy movie. They were always sort of filling in the comedy with this type of routine so you know it just feels like an evolution to me yeah and i I think lon was a little too precious with the monsters we've always known that like he was particularly precious with the wolfman you know like he was the only one to ever play that character i think he just took this stuff more seriously than it needed to be this isn't the first time we've heard about lon kind of having this sort of attitude but it is a little bit discouraging to hear how much he did not like making this movie yeah it's funny because i was expecting to sort of get that attitude from bella but bella seems to be having the time of his fucking life yes. in this one that's the next actor in this cast that i want to get to so oddly enough bella was not the first choice to play dracula instead the studio wanted to go with actor ian keith what Not even Carradine? No, they wanted to go with Ian Keith, who, strangely, was also Universal's first choice to play Dracula originally in 1931 for Todd Browning's film. Oh, wow. That's like when people, like, when the Broccoli's get, they're like, we're going to use Pierce Bronson eventually. Yes. You know, like, it may not be the next Bond or the one after that, but he's going to be Bond. (laughs) So this was Lugosi's first Hollywood film since Scared to Death in 1946, and his first time playing Dracula since that original film. He spoke very positively about this project, saying he was glad the script was not, quote, unbecoming to Dracula's dignity, end quote, and that, quote, All I have to do is frighten the boys, a perfectly appropriate activity. My trademark will be unblemished, end quote. There you go, right from the horse's mouth or or the bat's mouth. (laughs) (laughs) That's the main endorsement that seems to matter most because in my eyes, he's the dignified actor. Like he's the first on the scene. It's all kind of come from him. And so this is like a full circle in a lot of ways for us having watched these movies to be here near the end and him coming back is like a nice sort of curtain call for him. Yeah, you gotta remember that Cheney did a lot of B-level material even within the Universal Monster canon, right? Like he was just sort of that guy they would always go to and just put a whole bunch of makeup on him and just throw him into a bad horror movie. Lugosi had that also, but I know how much he loved playing Dracula. He was very protective 
perspective of Dracula, right? For him to come back to this project says a lot about the film. I don't think he would have done it if he felt like he'd be made a fool of. And so the fact that he's here, it speaks volumes to me. Awesome. Glenn Strange returning as the Frankenstein monster. Strange loved working on this film, saying it was, quote, one of the most enjoyable pictures I ever worked on, end quote. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely his best work in the monster role yet. He got to do something except sit there the whole time and he's in the whole movie. He gets to talk. I was hoping he would talk a lot more, but he represented this time. Like, good show for Glenn Strange. I was very happy with this. Got Lenore Albert as Sandra Mornay. Now, she was born in what was the Austro-Hungarian Empire at the time, and she and her husband, who was Jewish, came to America after fleeing Nazi persecution in Europe. She began as a model before becoming a stage actress and then began her film career in the early 40s. She was even pursued by Louis B. Mayer, who wanted to put her under a seven-year contract with Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. However, she was already on a contract with Samuel Goldwyn, who refused to sell her contract to MGM. It was a little bit confusing. I'm not entirely sure how that all works out, but I thought it was interesting that she was courted by these guys from MGM. She was mostly known for playing exotic and mysterious women. Her thick European accent unfortunately limited her choice of roles, and she's probably best known for this performance in Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. This time, especially, I was looking for it is until her sort of twist reveal. Mm-hmm. I feel like she's laying off the accent way more. And then when you know who she is, she's kind of leaning on it a little more. Right. Jane Randolph plays Joan Raymond. She was an American film actress who made her debut in the 1941 Warner Brothers film Manpower. In 1942, she was picked up by RKO, where she quickly became known for her roles in film noir. But she's probably best known for starring in Val Luton's Cat People, as well as its sequel, The Curse of the Cat People. Yeah, often mentioned on this show. Yes. Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein was her last credited film role. And in 1949, she married a wealthy Spaniard and moved to Spain where she lived out the rest of her life as a socialite. Oh, good for her. Yeah. Frank Ferguson as Mr. McDougal. Love this guy. I was getting heavy vibes of like Ron Howard's dad, Rance Howard off of this guy, if you're aware of him (laughs) as a character actor. But like, yeah, yeah, every time I heard him and saw him, I was like, wait a minute, double take. Frank Ferguson was an American character actor who got his start as a director and an acting teacher at the Pasadena Community Playhouse, which I'm pretty sure we've mentioned several times on this show before. Before he made his eventual film debut in 1940 in Gambling on the High Seas. Over the course of his career, he appeared in nearly 200 films and hundreds of TV episodes. Typical of character actors, he's got a list of credits a mile long, but is probably best known for playing the Swedish ranch handyman Gus Broberg on the CBS series My Friend Flicka and the Calverton veterinarian in the first few seasons of Lassie. More Lassie actors. We had a lot in the last movie. Did we? I think two of them, including, was it June Lockhart, one of them? We've had Mr. Ed actors, I know. Yeah, I think two of the actors in the last movie did some Lassie work. I feel like Lassie's come up in previous movies too where there was like intelligent dogs trying to save the day in a mummy film that's fair point fair point finally charles bradstreet as dr stevens he had an unlikely beginning to his acting career when accompanying his brother to auditions for a play he was given a script and asked to read for the lead which he ultimately got later while managing a bar he was offered a movie contract at columbia but was rejected by studio head harry Cohn because bradstreet once threw out Cohn's nephew he eventually got a contract with mgm where he floated around landing 
small roles. His best known role is probably here in Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein, a role he accepted because he was friendly with Charles Barton. And according to Bradstreet, he was offered the chance to play Tarzan and the lead in Gunsmoke, but turned down both. Claiming the glamour went out of acting for him, he ended up in real estate. Dr. Stevens, McDreamy, Charles Bradstreet. Yeah, I thought that was just like a running gag is that the beautiful assistant in the lab was this guy, like was Mr. Handsome, like <laughs> just a reversal of the role because we'll find out that Sandra is the new Dr. Frankenstein in the house. So I, I can understand like maybe he was like very upset he didn't have much to do here. So two uncredited roles I just wanted to touch on before we continue. We've got Bobby Barber who plays the waiter in a scene where Larry Talbot asks, have you seen Wilbur Gray and Chick Young? And he's like, seen him? I never even heard of him. That's Bobby Barber. He was like a longtime actor who worked with Abbott and Costello, like he on their show. Oh, okay. Nice inside joke. So I think this was like his little cameo. People who are familiar with Abbott and Costello would have recognized him immediately. So I love that he's included here. And then of course, at the very end, we've got Vincent Price as the Invisible Man in an uncredited role. Now, the thing that I love about this is that I had seen this movie long before I had ever seen The Invisible Man Returns. So I didn't know Vincent Price had played an Invisible Man before. Same. So in the past, I'd watch this movie and be like, oh, that's so great. It's Vincent Price. They got him to do The Invisible Man. And then I eventually saw The Invisible Man Returns. I thought, oh, shit. He's been an Invisible Man the entire time. How cool is that? Yeah, I love that too. I think I saw recently on a post, I think Sven Gulli played this and someone was like, wait a minute, Vincent Price is The Invisible Man? How come it's not Claude Rains? And it's like, ah, I originally was wondering the same thing when I first saw The Invisible Man. What's Claude Rains doing here? You know, why isn't it Vincent Price? You have to wait a film until he shows up. By 1948, I feel like if they tried to get Claude Rains, it would have been a lot more money than they were willing to pay. Vincent Price is probably much, much cheaper. You know, it's just nice that they got an Invisible Man back and they just didn't sort of be like, oh, you know, it's just, it's not just a cameo for the sake of it. It's like, no, it's an actual, it's actually one of the Invisible Men. So we're good. I got a couple little behind the scenes stories that I thought were kind of fun. Then we'll get into the movie. So apparently production was halted at one point due to an accident on set. In one scene, Glenn Strange was supposed to throw Lenore Aubert through a window. I knew it. I knew it. Yeah. I knew it. Just I rewound it and I actually went frame by frame because I said, this is an accident. This is not a stunt. <laughs> there was a wire attached to Aubert to help Strange lift her. And when she was thrown, she swung back toward the camera and Strange instinctively attempted to catch her, but he fell and broke his foot in the process. As Strange recovered from his injury, it was Lon Chaney who donned the makeup and performed the stunt instead. So if you rewatch that scene, after she gets thrown through the window, the monster turns around and starts lumbering toward Chick and Wilbur. And you can tell by the body language and by his face that it is not the same man. Yeah, because Lon Chaney got to play two monsters in one movie. That's right. That's excellent. That's got to be a record of some kind. You know, that'd be like playing the predator fighting the alien. You're fighting yourself as the predator or something. Also, as a promotional stunt, Universal paid for Boris Karloff's New York hotel bill to pose outside of Lowe's Criterion Theater. Karloff agreed to it saying, quote, as long as I don't have to see the movie, end quote. Oh, come on. You don't have to be like that. You might have liked this one. I think you'd have been like, hey, maybe I get to star with Abbott and Costello one day. He famously said that he had taken the character as far 
far as it could go. There really wasn't anywhere left to go and to keep the character interesting. And to be honest, in all fairness to him, the Frankenstein monster, he's not any different than he has been in the past couple films. I think Glenn Strange maybe gives him a little bit more emotion, but like they're not really doing more than making him someone's servant. Yeah, they're always trying to put a new brain in his head, right? They're always trying to find someone with a better mind and either it's like, we need someone smarter. No, that's not going to, we need someone dumber. No, no that's right. not working. Like, yeah, I could see that. But I just meant in the sense that like, you know, you might still enjoy the movie as a whole. Wouldn't you like to go see your friend Bella perform as Dracula one more time? I mean, if it were me, I definitely would have. Yeah, I don't know that he meant that as mean as it comes across, but I think he was just kind of over the Frankenstein monster at this point. I understand. Bud and Lou split $105,000 plus percentage of the overall gross. Lon Chaney earned $2,000 a week for five weeks work. Lugosi got $2,000 a week for four weeks work plus a single day. Glenn Strange got $750 a week for three weeks and four days. Lenore Aubert got $750 a week for five weeks and one day. Jane Randolph earned $350 a week for four weeks and two days. Charles Bradstreet earned $350 a week for four weeks. And Frank Ferguson got $750 a week for five weeks. Director Charles Barton earned a total of $16,000 for this film. All right. That is it for all my notes. And now we can get into the movie. I feel like I should say right here at the top that this film has a zillion gags in it, a mile in a minute, and we're not going to be able to get to all of them. So <laughs> we'll do our best. Yeah, yeah, we'll do our best. But I think like we're going to try and approach this like all the other films and just try and follow the plot first and foremost. And yes. when hilarity ensues, we'll do our best to comment on it. It's the one thing about that makes this one so difficult to do is because there's so much great material. I want to address every gag, every joke. And I just I don't think that's going to be possible. So no, can't do that as much as I'd love to. With some new studio restructuring and a new name, we get a new studio logo. I couldn't believe it. Of all the films, here it is. Finally. Well, it makes sense, right? Like, I kept waiting. I don't think I really knew that there was a studio, like, merger happening. Otherwise, I would have figured that's probably where it would happen. And, of course, here it is. We've got a very simple Universal International logo with a spinning globe. It's a little bit unimpressive compared to the ones <laughs> we've seen. But what's not unimpressive is this opening credit sequence, which features a full animation sequence with a Frankenstein monster, two skeletons representing Abbott and Costello. There's a wolfman in there and Dracula. I love this opening credit sequence. Oh yeah, yeah. The dancing skeletons and the bones and and everything and all that are that's what it reminds me of. You know, there's those classic dancing skeleton Halloween cartoons, I think like Mickey Mouse encountered. Yeah, just really cool bouncy, fluid animation style that feels like it's a bygone era, man. <laughs> it's all that like stiff Hanna-Barbera stuff that I grew up with. <laughs> the movie opens in a pretty traditional way. Uh, if you didn't know this was a comedy coming in, you might not realize it right away. It opens in London and staring out of the window uh, through the blinds of this hotel room is good old Larry Talbot looking nervous as usual. Yeah, no mustache this time either. Hey. Hey, he shaved the mustache, which makes me wonder about continuity. You know, if this might take place before House of Dracula or something like oh, that. Sure. I don't, we don't need to get into that, but it's just fun to think about. He makes a long distance phone call to Florida 
And we are immediately introduced to our lead characters, Chick Young and Wilbur Gray. As I said before, they are baggage clerks at a railroad station. And we get some really, really fun material here. Yeah, and they're in Florida. So it's like, you know, it's already scary as can be, right? Like they're in one (laughs) one of the most horrifying locations in America. Perfect setting for a horror movie. Yeah, but yeah, some great slapstick here as Costello goes to grab this lady's bag and he pulls it out of the bottom of the stack, gets buried under a bunch of luggage. Love that. After this little incident, though, we get we are introduced to Sandra. And one thing I caught this time around, I don't know why I never picked up on it before. It's probably because this time I was really watching it with a more critical eye. But in this scene, he like hurt his head. As soon as she enters the scene, she is very concerned about the condition of his head. So I like that little bit of foreshadowing there because as we find out, she has pretty serious plans for his head. I was thinking like, oh, he just got a concussion. All those bags fell on his head. And then she comes rushing over and I'm looking for foreshadowing and and things that they've planted. And she comes rushing in. And the first thing is like, she doesn't care about him at all. She's always been about his brain. (laughs) And it's so cool if you know what to look for. Yes. She has a really great interaction with Bud Abbott here. A running gag through the movie as Wilbur starts to collect girlfriends is that Chick can't seem to understand what it is about him that all these women are falling for him. There's this line where he says, frankly, I don't get it. And Sandra's response is, frankly, you never will. It's such a great line. Every time I show this movie to somebody, that line gets a reaction. Yeah, just love that that little bit there. Wilbur kind of reminded me, he's got like, he's got half the Wolfman curse already. You know, women were just throwing themselves at Larry. Now they're throwing themselves at Wilbur. I mean, <laughs> we'll find that they're using him and they have got ulterior motives and they're not really that all sweet on him or anything. But this poor guy getting taken advantage of left and right the whole movie is like kind of the hardest thing to watch about it, you know? Especially on second and third viewings, once you realize who everybody is and like what their motivations are. In this scene, they get the phone call from Larry Talbot, who informs them that there are two crates that are coming their way that are meant to be delivered at McDougal's House of Horrors and that they are not to deliver those crates until he gets there. I like this setup because it reminds me of House of Frankenstein a little bit with the traveling roadshow. And then I think even in a prior, maybe a Wolfman movie, they went to some fair and there was you know, a giant display of creatures. So this fits in line. There's like a precedent for it. And I really like that they're doing it here. Yeah, likewise, likewise. And so while they're on the phone, Larry experiences another one of his classic werewolf transformations. There's a really funny bit there where Wilbur thinks his dog is too close to the phone. Werewolf looks great. We're five minutes in and we're getting werewolf and I love it because it doesn't feel too hard. Like it doesn't feel like they're stretching too hard for these jokes. They all just feel sort of inherent to character. What else is he really supposed to think? He doesn't know anything about anything supernatural happening yet. And we know Larry as the Wolfman. So like, I think it's hilarious. I think it's hysterical. Yeah. I've mentioned this a couple times up to this point with these movies that feature a lot of characters, a lot of monsters. There's an inherent shorthand that we sort of rely on to know what's happening. And the filmmakers definitely knew that as well. They knew anybody coming to see this movie was going to be familiar with the Wolfman and Dracula and Frankenstein monsters. So they didn't have to go through to great lengths to explain anything, right? They didn't have to do the whole werewolf poem that we've heard a hundred times in the Wolfman. We know Larry Talbot. Yeah, although they will do that in a very fun way for Dracula and Frankenstein at the House of Horrors. 
with their signage and everything, yes. but that was efficient, so I didn't mind it. Yeah, and I, and I think a lot of that is more to give Bud and Lou more opportunities for comedy, more so than to explain things to the audience, right? But yeah, I love this interaction here with the whole Wilbur thinking that the dog is too close to the phone. and So he hangs up the phone, and he is immediately greeted by the real McDougal, who is very upset and very belligerent, I guess. Yeah. He's very angry and does has zero patience for Wilbur here. Yeah, because this stuff is like super expensive. So it's insured for like thousands and thousands of dollars. So everything needs to, you know, go according to plan with it. Yeah. So what we learn in this sequence here is that the two crates have been insured for $20,000. And then when Sandra shows up, he explains to her what the two crates contain. They contain the remains of the original Count Dracula and the Frankenstein monster. And that he got them from somebody in Europe for very cheap. They just pulled his name out of thin air. Yeah, as if she doesn't know all this already, which is so much fun to watch. Yeah, if you watch her face through it, she's either not interested at all, or she already knows all the information he's telling her. She's definitely not reacting the way I would if someone told me I have Frankenstein in a box, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Although, I mean, like, if I told somebody I had the remains of the original Count Dracula, I feel like most people would respond similarly. So it's really innocuous, you know, it's really kind of natural bored response i guess it is the way that chick responds most of the movie and we get a fun bit of slapstick here as they try to get these crates down to mcdougall's house of horrors one of the more cartoony bits where wilbur is up on top of the crate and sways back and forth i kind of i really enjoy this sequence i like how it's a lot of thunder and lightning it's a dark and stormy night like they're really set in the mood really well when they go to house of horrors it felt like a wax museum or like waxworks or something like that you know i was expecting some of these things to start moving oh yeah uh, it looks like there's maybe a, you know, what, uh, an interpretation of like a Jack the Ripper or something else, like really fun environment and just does so much of the work. It looks so good. Like it's so well done and everything that I'm taking it more seriously, you know, like if it just felt store-bought cobwebs and this and that, but no, like the production design here feels above and beyond, even if it wasn't all that expensive. It looks expensive. I'll say this across the board. I think all of the sets in this movie look really great. The House of Horrors here doesn't need to look super good. Not as good as it does. But I mean, I'm wowed by it anyway. The castle set we'll see later is incredible. The laboratory set and the swamp set is excellent too. If they were going to cut a corner, like this House of Horrors would be the place to do it, but they don't. Like all these different exhibits, there's like a pirate, not a hangman, but like an executioner with the guillotine. There's all kinds of fun stuff in the background. Yeah, and I think this also I mean, maybe to hide a little bit, but like there's a lot of shadow play in this particular sequence too, because they're in there at night, the lights go out, all that and everything. So they play up on that aspect of the old film's look. Yeah, so that was something that I really like about it. (laughs) Absolutely. Across the board. So now we've got one of my favorite sequences in the whole movie as they're unloading these crates. The gag is sort of predicated on all this stuff happening while Chick is out of the room, right? So while Wilbur's in there loosening the crates and unloading Dracula's coffin, and as they unload the Frankenstein monster, every time Chick goes out to the truck to do something, something happens inside to freak out Wilbur. Yeah. This is the entire movie, honestly. Yeah, it is. Until like three quarters of the way through the movie, 
chick is never around when the shit hits the fan. But yeah, this is sort of what I said a little bit earlier, whereas like there's only two or three bits that they keep repeating in every scene, but they switch monsters or something. You know, it's always like chick is going to leave the room. Wilbur's going to experience something and chick's not going to believe him. And it's going to take an hour for chick to finally see Dracula transform in front of his eyes and believe everything his friend said. And then the whole other thing is going to be that while Wilbur's in the room, there's going to be like a monster behind him screwing with him in the background, like either Dracula is going to be messing with him by opening and closing the coffin and sneaking in and out of it or the wolfman is going to be trying to like claw at him but barely miss him while he's like you know oblivious to him being right behind him and then chick will come back and he'll explain like his encounter and he'll be like you're lying but the sick thing is it works every time like it works every time like i don't know if that's like just the magic of them but it's fun i think that's really what it comes down to because you're right i think they really do kind of recycle the same ideas over and over with different circumstances but it always works maybe with a comedy pair that didn't have so much experience with each other like if the chemistry wasn't as great maybe it would grow tiresome but because their chemistry is so wonderful i don't question it for a second and it's really only because I'm watching this movie now with a critical eye that I even noticed that they were like the same handful of bits. Right. Me too. Yeah. This is also the part where he's reading the rules out loud to himself, you know, like Dracula by drinking the blood and then he has to stop and kind of like be like, oh, crap, why did it have to say that? Like that, those things. And, and he'll do the same thing with Frankenstein and try to explain to Chick, like, look, here's what it says about Frankenstein. And it'd be like, you can't believe that stuff. Like, that's not real. It's made up. And he's like, oh, I don't know. Yeah, I, I love the whole bit when he's reading the, the Dracula legend and like every time he gets a couple words in, he hears the of the coffin and like the candle gag is great like i said that was sort of recycled from hold that ghost it's excellent in that as well now we need to talk about bella because here he is here he is like he's back he's drac (laughs) (laughs) i didn't mean to say that and and i think he looks great you know he's obviously a little older but i like how they the makeup in this sequence makes him look I think they definitely made him more pale. Like he's wearing a lot more of that like pancake makeup to make him seem pale. Ah, that could be it. Much more than he did in the original film, I think. And that's probably because he had a lot more wrinkles here. He's in his 60s here. Ah, there you go. Okay. Yeah, I mean, maybe that's also why they keep the cape over his face most of the movie. I don't know why it's over his face so much. I dig it, but like it's so much. You know, and he's supposed to be able to hypnotize people, and he does. He does hypnotize. There's some great shots of his eyes, some super close-ups and stuff. But, like, I just didn't remember him doing the thing up over my nose the entire movie. I just don't – Oh, every time I – I don't remember that every time. I think that you're probably spot on in that they were trying to to hide his face a bit just to keep up that illusion that he hadn't really aged, even though it's completely obvious every time you do get a look at his face. But also, I think in some part, by this point, I imagine it was probably like the go-to Dracula impression. Like if somebody were to impersonate Dracula, they would do the cape in front of the face because you see it everywhere else. True. Ed Wood exploited that when he made Plan 9 from Outer Space when Lugosi died and he replaced him with his chiropractor, was 
closet and you know like we're just gonna hide his face with the cape you know i feel like kids when they were impersonating dracula would do the the cape over the face so it could be that they were drawing from that like even though it didn't occur in the film people were impersonating him that way like the way people would famously impersonate uh cagney with you dirty rat not a line in the movie but it's the thing that stuck yeah and so i kind of figure it might in some part be due to that as well I could see that. It also gives Dracula an iconic thing, like in the way that, you know, we put our arms out in front of us to mimic the monster. Right. Now you too can like easily be recognized as doing the Dracula thing or something like that. So maybe, maybe it even gained ground here. Yeah, that's interesting. Because I go back and forth every time. I was like, is it too much or is it cool? Like that they commit to this for the entire movie. It definitely helps to the point later when he appears in his alter ego and it's like oh okay like at least like they can't pick him out out of a lineup and be like oh he's definitely dr lehos or whatever so right yeah i mean it serves that practical purpose as well wilbur doesn't get a full look at his face here so he can't recognize him later so that's another reason why i think they did that but either way i like this thing that dracula's doing here Over the course of this scene, Dracula eventually manages to escape from his coffin and hypnotize Wilbur so that he can reanimate the Frankenstein monster. He does something that I've not seen before. I don't think we've seen this happen. The ring he wears on his finger has some sort of magical property to reanimate the monster. Yeah, yeah. He jumpstarts him. Like, I feel like it's a jumper cable kind of situation somehow because there's like shocks and zaps and, and, and things like that coming from it to be honest remind me of the flash because the flash keeps his suit in a ring and then i was like is this dracula a green lantern like what is with rings but then you know what i thought i was like dracula always had a dope ring on you know he was always kind of into rings so maybe they're just like let's take the ring and make it useful am i misremembering this or did the dracula in monster squad do the same thing dude i was not sure if i was misremembering that too so i wasn't gonna say anything but now that you said that like i was wondering the same thing I haven't seen that movie in like two or three years, and I've seen so many movies since. It's always hard to keep small details straight. I'm almost positive he does. And like I said, I haven't seen Dracula or anybody reanimate the monster in this way before. So I'd be surprised to find out that they were drawing from some other place when they did that in Monster Squad. Yeah, just a strange bit of like a magical MacGuffin, right? They never explain it. It's just, this is how the monster's reanimated. Works fine for me. Part of what I like a lot about this movie is we only come in on Abbott and Costello's part of it. So according to Larry, there's been a whole adventure of him tracking Dracula across Europe and finally getting him to Florida and figuring out that's where he is. And then it's like, you know, Larry has like crossed paths with these two nitwits and now they are part of the adventure. And it feels like the third act of a movie for Dracula Frankenstein. Yes. But like, you know, the whole movie for our heroes, like they're almost like a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern sort of situation where it's like, we're getting their side of the story of what happened. Kind of like we're on the seventh issue of a comic book series. Right. And then they just come in for the last two issues or something i like this dracula with the frankenstein monster reanimated dracula and he make their way out of the house of horrors just about the time that mcdougall shows up with his insurance adjuster to inspect the crates after they've been delivered they're supposed to come in empty the crates not touch anything else and now their stuff is missing so they get arrested 
exhibits are missing and or damaged and Chick and Wilbur are hauled off to jail for the night. Anytime Wilbur and McDougal are in the same scene together, they just, they're so funny. Like they're the extreme opposites, I feel, in this movie, uh, as far as like the energies that are being thrown around. So now we cut to this castle. That is, <laughs> the film is asking us to believe this castle exists off the coast of Florida. Looks like no castle I've ever seen off the coast of Florida. <laughs> I mean, it looks almost like Castle Grayskull or something. Like it's just it like does. on this island unto itself. Like it's very crazy looking i love the look of it but i'm like that has got to be part of the joke right is that it's somewhere in florida dwells this european castle crumbling <laughs> so i've watched this movie a couple of times in preparation for this and it struck me just how little sense this movie makes but how little i care about that stuff it all seems to be there just to facilitate the gags whatever this story is they're trying to tell like whether it makes sense or not like it just has to work. Yeah, the way I look at it is like, these are the elements that you need to have in play. So we're going to figure out a way to work them into this one way or the other. And I'm not going to explain to you why there's a creepy castle in Florida, but this movie needs a creepy castle because that's right. where the mad scientists live and do their work. So that needs to be here. Yeah, they're not letting logic get in the way of a good story. Exactly. So we get a wonderful little bat puppet. I love that they're still doing that. Oh, we also get the animated bat too that flies and then it sort of cuts to the toy bat which is really well done this time and then it becomes animated again into dracula so a lot of nice crossplay with effects definitely the lab set the castle set like i said before is all excellent i love the way this looks straight out of transylvania we learn that sandra is actually a doctor she's dr sandra mornay and She's working with Dracula. And she, like you said before, is essentially this movie's Dr. Frankenstein, which I think is a real fun twist. This was awesome. And it comes at like the perfect time in the movie to sort of get you up in your seat, start paying a little more attention again or whatever. I don't know. Like I didn't expect the plot to be moving along this quickly, this well. There's a lot of fun reversal things. I definitely love here how I don't think people are expecting her to be the new Dr. Frankenstein. It could be Frankenstein's daughter. That would have been an awesome way to go with it. But but she definitely owns this role and fills these shoes and is most threatening throughout the rest of the film. Yes. The general story here is that she is following the footsteps of Frankenstein. She's got his notes and she is the one who is best positioned to continue his work. Dracula needs a slave of some kind, and he's using her to transplant a new, more obedient brain into this monster. And so that's their dynamic, which I think is really cool. Yeah, I like how he's going by Dr. Lejos because he's had aliases in the past. Dr. Acula. Um, <laughs> if you will i love how dr mornay's like ah yes my good friend dracula like do come in wonderful to see you again i'm like what yeah. what are you talking about you know you're like i don't want her anywhere near wilbur anymore right it's like now i'm fearing for his life like it's such a cool twist i feel like they could have had dracula be his own mad scientist also if they really wanted to condense that like cut sandra out of it and then just have dracula be dr frankenstein in this also there's two things about that one is like he can't work all the time like he has to sleep during the day so i think that's why in house of dracula he goes to people and he's like you know i need you to help me out and do this stuff for me and the other thing is i just don't know about professor 
Dracula. You know, when did he have time to learn all the science and all that kind of stuff? I always see him more as like the benefactor, the money man. You know, I'll throw all the money at the R&D, but like I need someone else to actually perform this stuff. I mean, to be fair, I I think I'm probably thinking more about like Grandpa from the Monsters, who was a vampire and a mad scientist. That's totally fair. So I'm just saying it's possible, right? But then you don't have the whole sort of love rhombus or whatever shape this is no i hear that and also he gets his hands dirty later you know he does put on the scrubs and like gets into the lab he's working in the lab late one night okay so we go back to chick and wilbur who are in a hotel room they have been bailed out of jail presumably by sandra uh Mm -hmm. we will learn soon that that is not the case wilbur's still going on about what he saw he saw a big man about eight feet tall who'd been stitched together uh walked with his hands out in front of him and then the other guy had the the cape in front of his face and chick just not buying any of it and this is good too because wilbur's gonna do this again and again and again and they're gonna get better and he's gonna do his impressions of the monster and yeah. Dracula. The more he does it in the movie, the closer he actually gets to like what Bella and Glenn are doing. And then none other than Larry Talbot shows up at the same hotel. He, of course, has found out that Chick and Wilbur were in prison or in jail, rather, and are staying at this hotel. So he's here now, finally meeting up with him after he's come from Europe. Yeah, yeah. He runs into their room and like tells them the whole plot up until this point. I've been tracing those two crates across Europe to Florida and I finally found them and like I know what's gonna happen. They're like, uh-huh. This guy's nuts. I love that for Chick, it's easier to believe that these two other guys are crazy. But I mean, it's hard to argue with his logic. After this sequence, we get a really funny scene. Larry sort of locks himself into his hotel room and has another one of his werewolf transformations. This was fun because this is, he tells Wilbur, he's like, here's the key, lock me in the room. And then the thing about the apple, and he's like going back, he's like, maybe he counted the apples. And then he's like, well, maybe he didn't. And so he's almost opening the door with the werewolf behind the door. Like, that's a fun gag and i almost feel like that would be in a werewolf movie like that's not so ridiculous that you know it could be like someone forgetting their coat and then they go back in and they almost open the door with the werewolf in it but they open the closet instead like it almost isn't on the level of like just comedy like i feel like this just just like a fun little scene the only thing about it that really maybe is not very true to the character right i mean it works for me because they're playing it for comedy but in any other werewolf movie there's no way that the wolfman should be so slow to attack they really stretch this scene out as far as they can take it as wilbur writes the note saying he left the bag and like the wolfman is very slow to pounce yeah they compromise the wolfman a little bit but he's still the wolfman we've gotten into this before you know and this is where it works and where i think it didn't work for you was in one of the mummy movies recently where like you know the mummy was creeping up behind them and everyone's getting into a car and he reaches for them just as they drive away now i see why it doesn't belong there but it's the same gag over and over again here all right but they they establish early on that that's the kind of movie this is and we keep going back to the well and drawing this delicious water again and again so i'm just amazed at how much it works watching it in modern day i feel like it almost holds up better the more i watch it oh definitely there's some lines of dialogue in here that didn't age particularly well but generally speaking i think the comedy all works perfectly i mean it's like watching an old episode of i love lucy right that comedy is timeless also and you can watch it i mean i'm watching episodes of that before bedtime these 
days. And I'm still laughing out loud. It's universal in its execution, right? Like these aren't sophisticated jokes, right? They're something that always work regardless of what year it is. So yep. with Wilbur narrowly avoiding being mauled to death by the Wolfman, we revisit the insurance company. McDougal is there complaining about his missing attractions. And we are introduced to Joan Raymond, who is this beautiful blonde woman who has a plan to get his attractions back. She believes that she can get the information out of, I think she calls him like the the little fat one. She bailed them out of jail so that she could track them and get the information from him. Yeah. She's basically the blonde haired version of the other woman in the movie, except she tells the audience like what she's going to do up front. She's like, I'm going to go find this guy and trick him into thinking what I need him to think to tell me what I need to know. She's like just sort of on this side of being a villain, right? Like she's not quite. Sandra is clearly the villain. She's got dark hair. Joan has blonde hair and her tensions are pure. But yeah, they are very similar. I think I even wrote a note about that while I was watching the movie that like she's kind of the, the opposite side of that coin, which is really cool. We go back to the hotel. Wilbur and Chick are sort of getting ready for the day. They have a masquerade ball that they're going to. What a strange sequence of events. Like suddenly there's this masquerade ball. But again, it allows for more comedy, as we'll see. It allows for more macabre imagery, I guess you could say. And it provides nice costumes and things to look at. And yeah, a couple good gags while we're at it. so Just another thing that didn't make a ton of sense. This is the first we're hearing about this. She did say something about dinner and a date and things. So like they do go out and do stuff I was thinking. It didn't seem that strange to me because they're always going to a ball or something like that in like monster movies or things, you know, or like not always, but like, you know, there's events. And so a masquerade ball, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I was almost thinking of like Phantom of the Opera masquerade ball. Like maybe they were just drawing upon those things. Yeah, could be. In this movie, it didn't seem so strange, I guess. After Sandra leaves, moments later, there's another knock at the door, and it is Joan. Her story, as she tells it, is that she saw Wilbur at the train station and fell in love with him on sight and bailed them out of jail and has come to sweep him off his feet. By the end of this scene, Wilbur has two dates to the masquerade ball. They continue to play up that joke that Wilbur is this irresistible man and Chick can't get a date from anybody. You know, after the women leave and they're like, okay, we're going to go to this ball tonight, they go check in on Larry. And it is just as if he was on a bend. Like they even mentioned Bender and he's totally hung over. And it's all just like everything him saying about like turning into a wolf. They're just like, yeah, just like every guy, every guy's a wolf. Like that was pretty fun. Maybe um, art mirroring life a little bit here, knowing what we know about Lon Chaney. It's like, okay, maybe this is what he was really like. Yeah. I love I think twice in the movie, they make that gag about how he's going to turn into a wolf. And Wilbur says something about how like, well, he's going to turn into a wolf later tonight. And later, Later at the masquerade, he says he's going to turn into a wolf. And Wilbur says, yeah, you and uh, 20 million other guys. So that night, Wilbur and Chick head to the castle, as you do before a masquerade party. Joan is in tow, and she's under the impression that she is Wilbur's date and that Sandra is Chick's date. But then when they get inside, it becomes a little bit confusing. But I do enjoy that in this scene, when they knock on the door, they're greeted by Dr. Stevens. Oh, and then he introduces Sandra as Dr. Mornay. Yeah. 
Wilbur is learning that Sandra's a doctor for the first time. Yeah. And we got a little glimpse of Dr. Stevens earlier in the movie. He just kind of popped his head in as like the uh, dreamy assistant to Dr. Sandra. But I like here how he answers the door and it's just like written all over their face. Like he and Joan fall in love at first sight. And they're going to have an unseen movie also (laughs) throughout this story where by the end, they are probably going to go off and get married after this is over because they end up in each other's arms and i just thought that was hilarious these two characters like finding love in this madness oh for sure so sandra comes out to greet wilbur chick and joan and we find out that wilbur was supposed to come alone i mean we of course know why because she intends to take his brain from him but now she's got to call an audible right she's got all these other guests and so she introduces herself to joan and the two of them go to powder their nose while the women are powdering their nose, the phone rings. And when Wilbur picks it up, it's Larry Talbot on the other end, asking for a Dr. Lejos, who we will discover shortly is Dracula's alias. Do you just go around answering people's phones? I mean, well, nowadays you can't, but I guess when I was a kid, it was considered bad manners to answer someone else's phone in their house. I love also the coincidence of it like happening to be Larry like Larry and Wilbur talk on the phone a lot in this movie and it's just like oh yeah it's me what are you doing there I wonder if before answering machines were a thing if answering a phone in someone else's house might have been a courtesy like to take the message oh good call so I mean we grew up with answering machines I don't know I would love to talk to somebody from a time before answering machines and find out if that was a thing that people did at least just so you could take the message down for whoever's house it was good point and Larry's basically like you're in the house with Dracula get out and so now Wilbur can't stay still he wants to get out of there as soon as possible to not get eaten by Dracula so uh, just to prove that everything's on the level they decide that they're going to explore the house, which if anything is rude here, I feel like wandering around somebody's house (laughs) and going into their basement uninvited seems a bit rude. But anyway, there's a great Looney Tunes gag here where Wilbur says, all right, you check the basement. I'll I'll go outside. And Chick goes, no, you don't. He said, all right, well, I'll go outside and you check the basement. All right, that's different. Rabbit season, duck season. Yes. I think this might be, I mean, I don't know. It's hard to pick and choose, but this might be my favorite sequence this part this big chunk coming up of them going to the basement and back like everything from here till we get back to the women powdering their nose i just think is like phenomenal stuff like looks amazing is funny the the whole dosi do with the hidden wall the sort of rehash of we're just missing the monsters i'm seeing them you're not seeing them but they're there this and that i love all of it we're playing with secret passages that amazing set of the basement and the basement dungeon stuff yeah it's clear that when Mel Brooks made Young Frankenstein, he drew from every Frankenstein movie, like every one of these universal Frankenstein movies. I mean, down to the the swivel trap door. But yeah, this sequence is wonderful. It is pretty cartoony with that trick wall. But again, the monsters are true to themselves. And so Abbott and Costello can get away with that gag without compromising the integrity of the monsters. The scene where Wilbur, he goes through the wall and then he like sits down in the lap of the Frankenstein monster, right? Like that, that sequence. Apparently Glenn Strange had a really tough time not breaking character during that sequence. I feel like I see Bud Abbott almost 
breaking two or three times in this movie. At one point, when Luke Costello is like trying to like hypnotize him at one point, I could have sworn Bud Abbott like just had to go stone-faced. He just looked like he was about to lose it. And I catch that like a few times, it seems. I could get that from Glenn Strange. Like this sequence is hilarious too. And like I was thinking after, like I want a Frankenstein chair. That would be a cool chair. It would be awesome. And speaking of Mel Brooks, it just occurred to me that this gag with the Frankenstein monster's hand, so Luce sitting in his lap and like he puts his hand on the arm rest or the arm of the chair and then like recognizes there's an extra hand in there and it reminds me now of that scene in young frankenstein where the hand comes out of the coffin and then gene wilder pretends that the monster's hand is his hand he starts picking the fingernails maybe it's a bit of a stretch but i wouldn't be surprised to find out that that influenced that scene in young frankenstein either way it's a really yeah. funny gag but yeah so now we get you know a couple bits where they go back and forth behind the wall every time wilbur sees dracula and the frankenstein monster he tells chick about it they go up into the room of course they're gone a lot of really good back and forth here after this sequence they head back up into like the foyer of the castle meanwhile the women are finishing getting ready to go out while sandra is finishing up doing her thing joan sort of sneaks into this other room and discovers the notes of dr frankenstein and it's very it's very much like a looney tunes cartoon where you know it would say like dynamite on it it's like the rules of life and death by dr frankenstein Like, congratulations, you have just found the book of Dr. Frankenstein's life work. Yeah. And it's all very, like, neatly written out. I love that, uh, I'm going to call it a character at this point, but the character of Frankenstein's journal is back somehow. (laughs) From a black hole on the other side of hell, it reemerged here in the swamps of Florida, which seems fitting, I suppose. Again, we we mentioned how this thing is, like, almost as hot as the Necronomicon, you know? Like, you got to just, like, leave this thing alone you know lock it up you know, sink it under the river whatever you got to do so no one needs to read this but like the other thing that was great about the sequence is how caught joan gets like yes. she isn't being sneaky at all and like she is full-on scene doing everything going on in this scene it was awesome i thought that was hilarious that to me was i don't think it was supposed to be funny but that to me is like as from like a modern comedy standpoint like that's what was really funny and so sandra catches her right she sees what she's doing so while joan is doing her own snooping sandra sneaks into joan's purse and finds out who she is right right there's a moment previously when they get there where sandra mentions that you know she's here incognito and she asked joan like you know oh what are you up to and she said same thing so they're both not who they necessarily appear to be. Right, yeah. So now Sandra knows Joan is an insurance investigator and is there snooping around and could potentially cause some trouble. And so now as everybody is getting ready to go to the masquerade ball, Sandra decides tonight's not the night. There's too much going on. We got to do it another time. We've got an insurance investigator involved. We need to get rid of her. Chick is there, you know, like it's just not the right time. So that's when Dracula comes down as Dr. Lejos is very charming. When we leave the women and we go back into sort of like the hallway with Abbott and Costello. So Wilbur's just sort of sitting there, like staring off into space. And then he just screams. He just screams out of nowhere. It's maybe one of the best parts of the whole movie where he goes, who screamed? Who screamed? Then? <laughs> they finally get to meet Dr. Lejos. 
Bella comes down, charms the pants off of Wilbur, you know, says what we need is the young blood and brains. And yes. uh, the double entendre is thick in the air, but no one can really pick up on it. He also said something about, you know, like enjoying life while we still have it. All this double meaning flying around out of Dracula's mouth. But then they're like, oh, we're going to the masquerade ball. We'll see you later. And they try and split up. I thought what they were trying to do here was like split up the group so that they could get Wilbur to themselves. But no, it's like you said uh, Sandra like she decides like tonight's not the night and I was like this is like a great turn of events because like now everything's changing up again like another kind of twist in the plot and now Dracula's like what are you talking about we got to do this and she's like no 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 it's getting too dangerous you know she's like you do it yourself and hands over the book you know I was like well this is another great turn of events I love that Sandra is not afraid of Dracula at all I was like she's got some guts man She's got a little Isabella Rossellini thing going on in this movie, this this actress, you know? I was just I always, see that. The, the voice especially, too. And Dracula, like, at first I didn't think the hypnotizing thing was going to be enough, and I was right, because he straight up bites her, turns her into a creature of the night, I assume. Yep. And in that scene, like, there's a couple, I'm not going to call him it's not a continuity error but like it has a pretty glaring mistake in that scene when when dracula closes in to bite sandra you can clearly see his reflection in the mirror oh no i was actually wondering if i was going to catch that i think it moved a little too quick for me because you see her standing in the mirror clearly and then yeah he moves in and it seems like they tried to cover up his reflection, but I guess there's a gaff. Interesting. Yeah, he's clearly visible in the mirror. Ah. I don't know how many times I've seen this movie and I never really thought about it. Again, only because I'm watching it with a much more critical eye this time. I mean, they didn't make any attempt to really conceal the fact that he's in that mirror. Just a fun little detail for those of us who know our vampire rules. Yeah. Doesn't really interrupt the flow of the scene. Doesn't ruin the movie at all for me. Just kind of funny. No, no. I'm more focused on him biting her and turning her. You know, that's kind of where my focus is. Is it me or or did she kind of enjoy that? I feel like she kind of dug it. I feel like I might enjoy it. (laughs) I think that's part of it, right? Is that like you don't expect to enjoy it. It's going to hurt. And then when it happens, you like give yourself over. You're like, oh, yeah, it's euphoric. So while that's going on, everybody else goes to the masquerade ball, including Dr. Stevens. And as soon as they get there, he decides he wants to have a dance with Joan. And uh, Joan rocking the gypsy look, too, if you notice. That was cool. It's kind of like an Easter egg for the werewolf fans. Yep. So Chick and Wilbur need to change into their costumes. So while they're doing that, Joan and Dr. Stevens are going to have a dance. On their way to getting into their costumes, they run into Mr. McDougal, who's in a wonderful classic devil costume. Terrific. And as soon as he sees them, he accosts Wilbur and beats the hell out of him. Oh, my God. Yeah. This is one of my favorite gags of the movie where he like throttles Wilbur, right? And then Chick's intent is to like get a witness so that they can prosecute and send him to jail. And so the next guy who comes walking through, Chick grabs him and said, here, watch this for me. And it's a guy in like the suit of armor. And so go ahead, do that again. So McDougal throttles Wilbur again. And of course, the visor on the suit of armor comes down and our witness just doesn't see anything great bit of physical comedy there yeah and a good use of the environment as well by like playing off of the masquerade ball and all of that kind of thing i think that's what i was trying to say before is that the masquerade ball doesn't really make a ton of sense but it provides a lot of opportunities for this story like that gag in particular and then you've got chick has a uh, a wolf mask that he's going to wear and that's going to come into play later 
Yeah. The fact that they're at a masquerade ball gives us all these different opportunities for comedy and to develop the, uh, the story a little bit and separate the characters as well. So it all works really, really well. Wilbur is in what appears to be kind of like a Mr. Hyde costume. It's not explicitly stated. Yeah. The mask does kind of resemble the Hyde that we get in Abbott and Costello meet Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in a couple years. That's what it sort of looks like to me. We get that great cameo, as I mentioned before, from Bobby Barber in the locker room there. And that great line about how Larry Talbot and 20 million other guys become a wolf when the full moon rises. As they are now in their costumes, Dracula and Sandra arrive at the masquerade ball. So instead of nixing the plan altogether, Dracula is sort of forced out into the open. He's wearing what are his normal clothes, but he has passed passing them off as a Dracula costume. Yes, I love this. This reminded me of like the one time a year, like the Ninja Turtles can go out and be themselves as Halloween. They don't have to go out in disguise. And it's like Dracula, yeah, just chilling in plain sight. Like again, another great use of making it a masquerade ball, like is that Mm -hmm. he's able to now do this as a character. Yeah. I love the idea that he's like, no, we're going to keep going with this plan. Like, you might not be scared of me, but like, I'm Dracula. We're doing what I say. I love that Larry Talbot recognizes him immediately and addresses him as Count Dracula. Oh, that was so great. I love that. And he's like, you must not have me mistaken. Everyone's here. It's so cool. Like every character right now is like at the masquerade ball. Yes. And now Dracula is going to have his turn with Joan on the dance floor. And while he does that, Sandra takes that opportunity to get Wilbur alone and suggests they go for a walk. And so while while they go do that, the idea is that she well, she's a vampire now. So her plan is to bite Wilbur. And I don't know if she's going to intending to turn him into a vampire or kill him or what. I don't know. She's definitely trying to bite him here. I thought that she tries to hypnotize him and we get those cool like bat eyes in the reflection of her eyes. She's got like the bats flying, but it doesn't seem like whether he's just like too dim or that like you can't hypnotize him. Then she, I feel like goes in for the bite, but is saved right like just in time i think yeah she goes to bite him and that's when chick and larry talbot show up and sort of interrupt what's going on and so she takes off into the night wilbur now knows that sandra is a vampire larry suggests that maybe dracula lured her out into the swamp or into the woods there so now they all have to go find her yeah joan goes missing off screen which i'm fine with that that's okay it's it's not her movie per se, but they got to search the woods and it's a full moon. So, you know, that's no good. So Larry changes into the Wolfman while they're all searching the woods. I love this bit. I mean, it's it's a lot of time spent just for this gag so that Wilbur could mistake the Wolfman for Chick in his wolf costume. But there's some really good stuff here. So Larry has his classic transformation. This is, I think, the second full transformation of the movie. He's only got two, if memory serves. So we get this second transformation. Wilbur, of course, thinks that he is Chick with the mask on. At one point, punches the Wolfman in the nose. That was awesome. I love that about this. That, like, you know, when he he's got nothing to be afraid of when he's confident he's got like attitude and he's kind of a badass and, and he's a tough guy but then like the second he's not sure he just cowers completely and folds like a chicken and, and, and like something about that about the character is just hilarious that like he could go from having like the supreme confidence and fight a wolfman but then when he finds out it's actually a wolfman he's gonna run 
and hide and cry like as hard as possible. Yeah, it's a really great sequence here. I think this it's, it might be my favorite bit with the Wolfman in this movie. It's just so funny. Yeah, I love this. And then we find McDougal has been attacked by a wolf. And of course, everybody at the party knew that Chick had like a wolf mask, right? So everyone naturally assumes that Chick attacked him. But we know that it was Larry Talbot. But then Wilbur comes in and he's like, a wolf just tried to bite me too. And he's like, Chick, why were you trying to bite me? Why are you trying to bite me? He's like blowing up his spot without even realizing. He's like, come on, it wasn't me. I'm just trying to tell these guys how it wasn't me. And you're running in here saying that I was trying to bite you too. Like, you're you're making me look bad. And then McDougal's like, they're all in on it. The mob chases them through the woods. Wilbur gets separated, right? And he runs into Dracula who chases him down, eventually kind of hypnotizes him and, and gets him into that boat. Yeah. Yeah, and this is where Chick finally sees Dracula transform right in front of his eyes for the first time, and it's undeniable, and he just passes straight out. (laughs) Yes. Once Chick wakes up, though, it's like the next morning. Now there's like a search party. McDougal's there. He's got a hunting rifle. Like they're going to kill Chick and Wilbur. Pretty much. We do need a mob out and about at some point. Right. Larry is back to his normal human self, but this time Chick knows the truth. He realizes in this moment now that Larry was for real about being a werewolf, uh, having witnessed Dracula transform from a bat into a man and vice versa. He now has to believe that werewolves exist too. Yeah, I like this, these two teaming up. Like, I feel like the two of them would just make a good straight sort of adventure team together if it was kind of like chicken the werewolf you know it wouldn't be funny at all but like i feel like these two would get shit done wilbur is now held captive back at the castle and he's in this stock like a stockade of some sort Um, his head is kind of stuck in this hole while he's awaiting surgery dracula is sleeping as the scene begins dracula starts to wake up and emerges from his coffin and now like the operation is going to begin yeah i like this when he's asking the monster for help where he's calling him junior he's like junior junior thought of you immediately (laughs) because i know how much you love to refer to the frankenstein monster as junior and so throughout that i just kept thinking of you and also he refers to the monster as frankie that's right i caught that too and i was like i think maybe is that it's like that's perpetuating the myth that his name is frankenstein but i'm okay with it because it's adorable when then dracula comes in uses that ring again he's upset because the monster's even weaker than before like we got to get this going we're wasting too much time and sandra spills the beans finally tells wilbur the truth finally I love how she frames it, that he's going to be uh, taller and strong as an ox. Live forever. That all sounds great. And then she mentions, oh, well, we're going to put your brain in, in that body. Yeah, he loses it. Oh, my God. Meanwhile, Dracula goes back to the lab to like deal with Dr. Stevens. Stevens, up to this point, was completely oblivious to what the actual work they were doing was, right? Because there's a moment where he says, every time you, you order this equipment, you don't tell me what it's for. Yeah, dude, you're such a himbo. Like, Do a little investigating like every other person in every other movie had like one person investigating what was going on that's not anywhere here you notice that yeah i I would love to know what kind of work dr stevens thought he was doing that whole time yeah but anyway he finds dr frankenstein's notes and puts the pieces together and realizes what they're doing and he will not stand for that however sandra knocks him unconscious before he can do anything about it 
I like that, that she just like took out her own help, but she's been transformed at this point. So it's basically Dracula's will working through her. And I maybe I have to revise my statement earlier about Professor Dracula. Like, I, I think I do dig him in the lab late at night more often than not. Um, there's something a little more kind of like twisted now that you think about it, about like a vampire doing experiments on people. You know, even if you think about him doing it to like cure himself, if that's what he was doing, like, but working on, you know, humans and as like lab rats now the more i think about it the more i'm into it yeah i love that dracula is so hands-on with the actual like science of it all and i'm glad that they didn't just make him the sole mad scientist character as well oh dan you have no idea how glad i am that he he's still here in the movie that he hasn't died by now (laughs) this is unusual right he makes it to the end of this one which is cool so as he and sandra prep the monster they get him on the operating table and wheel him into the laboratory chick and larry sneak in and there's a wonderful gag where chick's using a um, rock to try and break the lock on the stockade that's got Wilbur hell and he sticks it on Wilbur's hand and like doesn't realize that it's hurting Wilbur's hand. I don't know. It's tough to describe. Funny to watch though. So now they're trying to make their escape, but they don't get very far. They get out to the boat before they can get away. Dracula intercepts Wilbur and sort of hypnotizes him. And this time the hypnosis works and he manages to get Wilbur to get back into the lab on his own. I guess you got to be as strong as Dracula to really get Wilbur under hypnosis. It seems like it was even a strain for him to do. He felt a little winded, like, oh man, this guy was a tough one. But I love, oh my gosh, that's so great. Like Wilbur just starts walking and then he starts skipping. I heard somewhere that originally that was supposed to be like an effect shot where Wilbur would have resisted Dracula's influence. And instead of walking back into the castle, he was going to sit down on a rock and Dracula was going to to use some ability to basically levitate the rock with Wilbur on it and send it into the castle. But it would have been too expensive to do. So I think they nixed it all together and decided to just have him skip. All right. I like it. It's funny. So while that's going on, Chick and Larry are trying to find Joan and they rescue uh, Dr. Stevens as well. By the time they get back to the boat, Wilbur and Dracula are gone. Wilbur is now strapped to an operating table, really trying to get Sandra to release him. She looks amazing in the scrubs for some reason. I don't know what it is. It reminded me of what will come later, like the Dr. Frankenfurter sort of look of him in his lab. I don't know what it is, but she looks very scary in this lab sequence. And there's something very iconic about her look here in that shot i can't quite put my finger on but like it just kind of gave me a chill where i was like yeah she kind of earns her spot in the mount rushmore of mad scientists i guess you know in the universal series like as funny as this is and as much as it's a comedy like i feel like it's also perfectly legit as far as fitting in with the rest of the films we watched so i really like her about this movie and all the kind of straight monster stuff that we do get i think works really well absolutely yeah i really i really like it the whole ensemble with the rubber gloves the hat that she's wearing i love that yeah. i don't think i've ever seen anything quite like that before but yeah i love how that works with her now she's like you said she's a vampire now and so she's much more stoic the fact that her face is covered like most of her body is covered and we really just see her eyes it really helps sell that stoicism yeah i also really like the animated lightning and sparks 
perks that we're getting along with the real stuff. It's cool to see the extra mile going with that. And that's fitting in. Like, again, the whole vibe of this lab is like pretty perfect. Yeah, I agree. We got like what, five minutes left, I think. A lot happens in the next five minutes or so. Pandemonium breaks loose. I equal it to like a, a wrestling match again, Dan. Like, we we're just going to get chairs broken over each other, like going through doors, like yeah. windows, multiple rooms. It's like when they leave the ring and go backstage and it just keeps fighting and fighting throughout the locker room. That's exactly right. And it has one of my single favorite moments in this entire movie. We'll get to it. As Sandra is about to cut into Wilbur with her scalpel, the door bursts open. Larry and Chick have come in to rescue him. Then, like you said, it's just pandemonium. Chick grabs a chair and he goes to like defend himself against Dracula. He swings it over the top of his head, smacks Sandra with it. That was insane. Poor Sandra meets her demise in one of the most amazing ends of any character. Again, and I think in the last movie, a similar thing happened to the hunchback assistant, right? In the House of Dracula. So the Wolfman and Dracula are sort of like on two ends of Wilbur's little slab. It's like the cart that he's being operated on and they do that i don't know like a, almost like a tug of war between him and he goes like spinning out of control the monster gets up picks up sandra and just like launches her out of the window and this is the stunt that we mentioned early on that there was some kind of like problem with but I, my mind is going a mile a minute during this climax like i cannot keep up it is awesome there's not a single dull moment from here to the end and the action is so wonderfully orchestrated i never feel confused as to what's going on it's all very clear yeah one of my favorite parts is when dracula just like takes off and the wolfman runs after him we just stay on wilbur in the room and that's when the monster gets up and it's yes. like oh it's so great how they don't follow the action around the whole place like it gets Gives it a bigger scale somehow where you realize like all this other stuff is happening that we can't quite see. Like you said before, we are following Chicken Wilbur's experience through this. Larry Talbot, Frankenstein Monster, and Dracula have all been part of this story well before we enter it. And all of this happens from that same perspective where we get a little bit of Frankenstein monster action and then they go into another room and there's Dracula fighting the Wolfman. So they go into another room and there's the Frankenstein monster again. This action is all happening around them and we're getting bits and pieces of it. But again, I love how clear it is. It never once feels jumbled. No, it doesn't. And there's stuff going on in the background while there's stuff going on in the foreground that is sort of relating to each other and the action will shift from foreground to background at times and it's during all of this craziness that there's a shot that I just could I just totally forget every time it's an, it's amazing where Wilbur just runs over to a table grabs the tablecloth and yanks it out from everything and then and then he looks at the camera and gives like a little chuckle and runs <laughs> off frame oh my god perfect that might be my favorite moment in this movie or at least it's one of my favorite moments every time I, I watch this I laugh out loud because I forget about it right it's just a quick moment and I'll put it on and then that bit happens and it gets me every single time yeah, yeah part of it for me is that he does that and looks at the camera as if to say can you believe this as if like you can't believe all this other shit that's been going on the whole movie if it were me no matter what's going on around me if 
I managed to pull off a tablecloth and leave everything else on the table still standing, did somebody see that? I would look around, right? Like I would want yeah. that validation because how often do you get a chance to say that? So yeah, I love that. It takes what, two seconds. It's, it's yeah. a two second moment and it makes the movie for me. Yeah, it's such a great break in the action. It's such a perfect beat in the rhythm of all of the stuff happening, all of the sequence, all of the editing, the way it's cut. You're right, Dan. Like, I was, like, super impressed being able to follow the layout of this castle, like, where everybody is at all times, you know? There's that wonderful bit where they run into the bedroom and they put the bed in front of the door, but then the door opens out instead of in. So Frankenstein just opens the fucking door on them. All that kind of stuff. You really got to kind of understand the layout of a place to be able to work all these gags in. And, and it's kind of shocking at the end of the day to be like, wow, it's almost like perfect. With the tablecloth, right? So Wilbur uses that to impersonate yeah. Dracula, to confuse the monster. And it works. It's one of those moments where his confidence has taken over. And yes. for a second, he forgets what the goal is. And he's like, hey, it actually worked. You see that? And then the illusion is broken. He puts the thing over his face. And I go, oh, maybe that's the payoff for having Bella put it over his face the whole movie. And it's like they did all of that just for this punchline. And then it works. And he goes to Chick. He goes, hey, he thinks I'm Dracula. And it's like, you just blew it like i got so into that moment i couldn't believe it it's amazing to me how many jokes they cram in these last couple minutes it's not just physical comedy it's a really incredible blend of the physical comedy just the chemistry between abbott and costello there's a lot of great action i mm -hmm. love seeing 60 year old bella lugosi in a fight sequence with lon cheney as the wolfman assuming that it wasn't entirely stunt doubles i don't think they did the entire thing with stunt doubles still seeing these characters go at it knowing that house of dracula was almost dracula versus the wolfman right like yeah. we almost had that movie so here we actually get to see that play out yeah i was super psyched it's like one of my favorite frank frazetta paintings like i even sent you earlier in the week in our little like monster thread a picture of frank frazetta's wolfman sketches and there's one of him fighting dracula and i'm like this is it we're getting it love it even love the monsters walking like glenn strange is doing some weird stuff on his own too with his body language and things and like trying to do something interesting to look at and i think he's succeeding for as much as he gets to do everybody is basically fully formed here doing their thing doing the monster mash rocking out at the end it's it's a real blast it's really fun to see real quick before i forget about it there's a stunt story in here the bit where they lock the frankenstein monster in the room and they're like holding it shut outside of it and they're having a little bit of uh, dialogue between each other and then Glenn Strange's fist comes through the door and hits Costello in the face the actual story about that moment the take they used Lou Costello he was off his mark and he actually got punched in the face man these monster movies were dangerous to make throwing people through plate glass windows punching people yep. like right in the head people falling off of cliffs and remember that one invisible was it the invisible woman when the guy dove into a pond Dan I'll yep. never forget yep. that that yep. was frightening yeah. If you watch this particular take, Lou gets socked in the face. It doesn't immediately cut. He has to stay in character and, and he never breaks. True professional in this moment. He just got punched in the face by Glenn Strange, who is a big dude, and then had the wherewithal to like just roll with it and then get through that take. Love it, love it, love it. The Frankenstein monster bursts through the door. Chick and Wilbur make their way to the exit. The Wolfman sort of backs Dracula onto a balcony. He decides 
decides he's going to make a run for it, transforms into a bat, but not before the wolfman can like dive and grab him on his way out the balcony and into the water below. That shot was awesome. Like that whole idea, the concept of Dracula trying to make a break for it, turning into a bat. And like, you could almost hear his thoughts being like, I've made it. And then the wolfman just jumping onto the bat, grabbing it, leaping off the ledge and down into the rocky water below. And it's like, oh, just took two of them out at once. You know, I don't know. I mean, look, Dracula didn't die from like a stake or anything like that. But if he's down there long enough, the sun's going to get him. The wolfman probably going to survive, but it's going to take a while for him to reemerge. It's just what a amazing double takeout by you know wolfman taking himself and dracula out like at the same time without even really realizing honestly there's nothing about that that would suggest that either of them is dead we've seen the wolfman fall into the water how many times i don't think there's any reason to suggest that dracula could be killed in such a way so i think these characters are still going to be alive but it at least affords Wilbur and Chick time to escape. Yes. While they're doing that, they run out to the dock. McDougal is there, <laughs> of all people. And he's there for Wilbur and Chick, of course. As they confront each other on the dock, the Frankenstein monster approaches. McDougal, not interested in dealing with that at all, uh, decides to make a run for it. And Dr. Stevens decides to douse the, the dock in gasoline. Yeah. So that's the move. McDougal and his buddy jump into the water. Joan and Dr. Stevens grab the gasoline and the whole dock just goes up in flames as Wilbur and Chick jump into the rowboat that's right there. Amazing flames. This yes. fire. I mean, this looks so dangerous. And then Glenn Stranger's walking right into the fire. You can tell if you watch that sequence that at a certain point it's a dummy, but like the legs were animated with like planks. I guess they had like wooden legs that they could move to make it look like he was walking. Ah, all right. Very convincing, very cool looking, like great conceptually, just the whole idea of the monster just like getting doused in those flames and everything and then and then everybody jumping off of the dock into the water. Uh, it's real fun. Of course, the two of them trying to row away at the end, only to realize it might not just be the end quite yet. Yeah, they're thinking that everything's over and <laughs> Wilbur's like, next time I tell you I saw something, you're going to believe me. Chick says that it's the last we've seen of Dracula and the Wolfman and the Frankenstein monster. And, and then our final monster makes his brief cameo. Turns out that they have a stowaway and it's Vincent Price lighting a cigarette as the Invisible Man. I love the effect there. If you look closely, you can sort of see him in the silhouette. But overall, pretty wonderful effect. Yeah, yeah. I loved that they actually had someone there um, probably wearing that black felt suit, you know, so that they could comp him out at some point. And yeah, just, you know, lighting the cigarette to introduce himself. And, you know, I think this is the first time that I actually was able to tell how they did the effect like that, because I remember like as a kid, always thinking that that stuff was floating in the air on strings or something like that, you know, but I think oh, sure. now, now with like high definition and, and my big TV and all that, I, I was able to see you know the outline and stuff but it's so so great love that ending such a great ending because it's almost like it could either just be 
a final joke or it's like, maybe we're going to do another one. It's a cliffhanger. Yeah, I'm not sure if they immediately knew they wanted to make a sequel or, or how soon they knew they wanted to make a sequel. I guess we'll talk about that when we get to Abbott and Costello meet the Invisible Man. Considering the success of this movie, and then you have that little tag on the end, it makes perfect sense to me that they would go straight to the Invisible Man. That's Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Is there anything you'd like to add, Mike? It's amazing. It's just so amazing. Like, I love this movie. For what it is, I think it's perfect, man. I think it's great. I mean, I never would have thought that I would still like it as much as I liked it, you know, having seen it as much as I had seen it over the years. But going through from beginning to end, like we've been doing, Dan, like, I think I might have like a whole new appreciation for what I just watched. They really figured out a clever way to work in all the monsters for me. We got a great new villainess. Abbott and Costello are hilarious. I I dig all of the bits. Um, The only thing I would say is, you know, maybe they felt like they might have done too much. It's like we used Dracula, Frankenstein, and the Wolfman. Like we gotta, we gotta search for other monsters to fill the marquee with now because we just used three of them. Yeah, and the next ones we're gonna do, it's one monster in the movie, you know. So right, this this is the only time where we're gonna get something that felt like those monster rallies with you know House of Frankenstein, House of Dracula. That's maybe my only thing is that like you know maybe we could have squeezed another one or two out of here if we didn't double up or triple up on monsters the first time but then again we wouldn't have gotten such an amazing film as it is and so i think this has something for everybody i think everyone can find something in this movie to enjoy i give it a ringing endorsement if you're not much into horror films there's so much comedy in here that it's got enough of that to satiate you right if you're into horror it's got classic monsters in it but yeah this this movie really threads the needle of having its cake and eating it too it's got everything that you could possibly want from a movie with classic monsters and abbott and costello and it doesn't in a way that feels effortless it doesn't overstay its welcome i don't think there's a single gag in the movie that doesn't work and how rare is that right like for a movie with so many jokes i don't really think any of them are clunkers and that won't always be the case as abbott and costello got through the 40s and then got into the 50s. Their popularity was still very high, I think largely because of their material from the early 40s and then this film. But I think it's safe to say that their material wasn't quite as good in the 1950s. It's hard to believe that their popularity was waning before this, right? Like they were super hot in the early 40s. People were less interested. And then this movie came out. And if you were watching out of context, I don't think anybody would ever suspect that this reinvigorated their career, right? Because this very much feels like them at the top of their game. The monsters too. I would say the same is true of the monsters because we know very well at this point how they were like really just bottom of the barrel so to speak and here it's like an incredible dracula an incredible wolfman really great performance from glenn strange as the frankenstein monster it's wild to imagine that like two years after she wolf of london when these characters were on their last legs that they could come back and breathe so much life into them and make it feel so fresh again i don't think i have anything else left to say that's pretty much it i think everybody should watch abbott costello meet frankenstein it's a real winner perfect film Yeah, I second that. We are in lockstep tonight, Dan. Well, I think that's a good place to end. It's time for us to get back into our little rowboat and get off to safety. We will be back on Friday, December 30th to discuss more hilarious hijinks in Abbott and Costello Meet the Invisible Man. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at MonsterMadePod, on Instagram and Facebook at TheMonstersThatMadeUs, and you can email us at TheMonstersThatMadeUs at gmail.com. We really love hearing from you. Past couple episodes, we've had some mail to read. So please, write us letters. Let us know what you think. You can follow me on Twitter at Dan Cologne. Mike, where can listeners find you? 
you. You can also find me on Twitter at the underscore Mikester and all the other shows I'm on at cageclub.me. I'd also like to point out that Mike and I just recently did an episode of Mike's other show in addition to this, but we both were on Uncle Francis's Wine Cellar where we were talking about Bram Stoker's Dracula from 1993, the Francis Ford Coppola film with our good friend Brian Rodriguez. So definitely go check that out. That's a two-parter. We were having so much fun talking about Dracula that we just couldn't help ourselves. That's also on the Cage Club Podcast Network, anywhere you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to become a Patreon supporter, you can do so at patreon.com slash the monsters that made us. You can also support the show by giving us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. And we can't forget about our t-shirts on TeePublic. You can find the link for that in our aforementioned Twitter and Instagram bios. For all other things Cage Club related, just head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Stay spooky, everybody. Thank you.